I think any place you travel, though, I mean, you're, you're seeing things. But I think the, the people you meet are more personal, more meaningful than the things you see. Mm. You go to a famous museum, and yes, you've been to the famous museum, you've read about it, you maybe have known about it most of your life, but then you have these little encounters with people, and those are the things you seem to remember the best and you feel best about. Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is a milestone of sorts. It's the 100th episode of Deviate. It's a very personal episode about the joys of travel, and it was inspired in part by the conversation I had back in episode 79 when my friend Jeff and I recounted our first van vagabonding trip around North America 25 years ago, but it was also inspired by this podcast. All right. Chris Ryan is here. My dad is here. I he am here. No idea what's happening. I did fly in from Boston and well, you flew in for my birthday. Happy birthday, Bill. Thanks. All right. For my birthday, That's I want Yeah. <laughs> I'm turning 50 today, and one of the things I wanted was to do a Shawshank Rewatchables. We've been saving this. That was from the Rewatchables, a movie-themed movie. podcast from the Ringer Network. That's one of my favorites from week to week. When Bill Simmons invited his dad on to talk about the Shawshank Redemption, it made for such a great conversation that I decided to invite my own parents on to deviate. Now, my parents aren't really film buffs, and I don't talk to them much about movies, but I do talk to them about travel all the time. Though, weirdly enough, for all the ways my parents enriched my life growing up, including taking me on American road trips, my parents didn't start to travel overseas in earnest until I invited them to do so with me in my 20s, This ultimately led to an interesting and at times hilarious travel dynamic, which, as it happens, is something I reported about for public radio back in the day. Here's journalist and endurance athlete Diana Nyad introducing my dispatch from Mongolia for an episode of an old NPR show called The Savvy Traveler. Well, contributor Rolf Potts thought he knew his parents. After all, he did grow up with them. But then he took a trip with his mom and dad. Now he really knows them. Walking across the Mongolian steppe, I'm mesmerized by the wide open space. The landscape is stark and simple. Blue sky and grassy curves stretching out to everywhere. A vision as elemental and bewitching as fire or rain. As I soak in the grandeur, I suddenly get the feeling that something's missing. Sliding out of my reverie, I realize what it is. My parents, who were right behind me when I started hiking an hour ago, seem to have disappeared. I turn in a circle and scan the horizon. I'm not sure whether to be angry or worried. Neither my mother or my father have much experience in traveling overseas, and I should never have let them out of my sight. I imagine all kinds of horrible things, sprained ankles and broken bones, bear attacks and highway robbery. I jog to the top of a grassy ridge and finally spot two small figures in the distance. My mother and father are there all right, but one hour into the hike, they've only made it 600 yards from where we started. Both of them are in good health, so I can only conclude that they've been lollygagging and goofing off. Since we have several miles yet to go before it gets dark, I head back in their direction, determined to give George Dallas and Alice Margaret a scolding they'll never forget. 
Ever since this family trip was in its planning stages, the whole parent-child dynamic has been strangely reversed. I've become the stern, seasoned role model, and my parents have been the helpless, clueless innocence. My father's a retired science teacher who's intelligent enough to write wildlife guidebooks, but for some reason he was convinced there might not be any hotels in Beijing. My mother, a grade school teacher who once led a fearless campaign to make the salamander the Kansas state amphibian, was worried that she might catch bursitis from a Mongolian marmot. When I met them in Beijing, it only got worse. Whenever I deciphered a subway map or learned a few words of Mandarin, things they could have just as easily done themselves, mom and dad acted as if I had superhero powers. What's more, my parents didn't even know how to behave at some of the grandest sites in China. In the Forbidden City, my mother ignored the immaculate architecture, preferring to sit in the shade and show pictures of my baby nephew to Chinese grandmothers. As we walked to the Temple of Heaven, my father kept snapping photos of buses and billboards and phone booths. I finally scolded him when he took a picture of a McDonald's. But it's a Chinese McDonald's, he said earnestly. I've realized that my parents simply haven't cultivated the sense of sophistication that travel requires. When a guide tried to tell us about Mongolian winter clothing, my father responded with a 10-minute discourse on the merits of polypropylene sock liners. When my mother learned about the brutal conquests of Genghis Khan, she exclaimed, and I quote, he really doesn't sound like a very nice man. As I hike back across the grassy Mongolian steppe, I notice from a distance that my father is crawling around on his hands and knees. Before I can scold him, he springs up and jogs over with a fistful of wildflowers. Look, he says, this yellow one's just like primrose. He goes on to show me his other floral treasures, daisy fleabane, bee balm, and buttercup. I'm going to take these back to my botanist friends, he says, but I'll pretend I found them in Kansas just to see what kind of reaction I get. Before I can respond, my mom calls me over to the flattened grass of an old nomad camp. Look, she says, holding up a piece of metal. Oh boy, I say sarcastically. Looks like you found some garbage. It's not garbage. It's a piece of handmade chain link. My mother shows me some more of the cast-off treasures from the flattened grass. Sheep's wool, horse's teeth, and melted glass. What impresses my mom about this garbage is that there's so little of it. It's just like when I was growing up on the farm, she says. You don't waste anything, not even water. I'm about to tell both my parents to get their heads out of Kansas and start seeing Mongolia, but my dad says something that makes me reconsider. Your mother sees this place through the eyes of a farm girl, he says. I see it with the eyes of a biologist. If you brought an artist or a geologist or a historian out here, They'd probably love this place for completely different reasons. As I consider this, I realize that travel hasn't turned my parents into children. It's simply allowed them to enter a curious playground version of their own lives. While I've been thinking about itineraries, logistics, and expectations, they've been deciphering the exotic through babies and buildings, through nomad garbage and wildflowers. In this way, I guess my parents are still being my parents. In seeing our surroundings with naive eyes of wonder, my mother and father are simply setting a good example. 
They're showing me that a fascination in the tiniest wrinkles of the world can help you find your way as you travel, even in the wide open spaces of this Mongolian steppe. From Mongolia, this is Rolf Potts for the Savvy Traveler. That radio dispatch, which is now nearly two decades old, is still accurate and sharply evocative of the journey I took with my parents. But all these years later, I still realize how much I had to leave out when I told that story. I recently found the old field audio I recorded in China and Mongolia for that trip, and it was an interesting window into how that trip played out in real time. For instance, I now realize that I didn't use much of the audio I recorded in the field, in large part because my parents weren't all that savvy in the ways of radio, which means we kept having half-baked exchanges on our first day in Beijing, exchanges like this one. Well, today's our first day in the city, guys. What do you What do you most anticipate? Or do you have no expectation? <laughs> so you are interviewing us now. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we anticipate a thirty-minute walk to the subway, and then a short subway ride to Tiananmen Square. And what do you think you'll find there? Space, a lot of space. These conversations happened all the time when I tried to record my parents as they traveled. I would ask them a question and they would answer not on behalf of an unseen radio audience, but out of their own uncertainty with what the day in this new place might hold. It's funny how all these years later, this audio reveals how banal travel chit-chat can be at times. That is, how much of a given journey is given over to secondhand information and simple curiosity about what exactly it is we're seeing not to mention the constant comparisons to home. For example, when my mother first saw how Mongolian nomads lived such a simple existence and how little they owned, her first instinct was not to comment on their relative poverty, but to recall what life was like for her and her family growing up. When I was going to elementary school, we wore the same outfit three days in a row. And then we changed and wore a different outfit. It wasn't until I went to high school that I started wearing a different outfit every day. Of course, we had one pair of shoes, dirty, serviceable shoes. The boys had work shoes. On some Saturday night, they were polished to wear, washed off and polished to wear to church. I had saddle shoes. We hated saddle shoes. Listening to this, it reminds me of how any journey can be a kind of time travel, in this case reminding my mom of her own childhood in a way that probably didn't occur to her until she saw Mongolian people living in conditions that haven't been common in the U.S. for years. This in mind, and since the experience of travel has deepened my relationship with my parents over the years, I decided my guest on this episode of Deviate would be Allison George Potts, my mom and dad, who would help me recall and celebrate that fantastic trip we made together to China and Mongolia. My parents were in their 60s at the time, and we pretty much traveled like backpackers, staying in hostels and riding on second-class trains and walking on foot for several miles every day. To this day, our memories of the trip are still exciting and special and memorable for us. And as you listen to our conversation, you'll no doubt get some ideas about how to travel in China and Mongolia, but for the most part, this conversation is evocative of how amazing it can be to travel with your family. How the little connections you make to the place you're visiting, in a sense, become connections that you share with each other for years to come. 
You can hear the raw energy and enthusiasm in our voices as we discuss all the happy accidents and simple pleasures we found in China and Mongolia, and how this energy never fully goes away, even years after you experience those pleasures. I really loved having this conversation. I hope you love it too. And I encourage you to travel with your parents or your kids if the chance ever presents itself, since it can end up being a gift like no other in life. A reminder that this episode is brought to you by Airtrex, which specializes in round-the-world and multi-stop itineraries for vagabonding-style journeys, including affordable stops in places like Beijing and Ulaanbaatar. Check out their trip planning tools at Airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip. But for now, please listen in as my parents and I recount the amazing travels we shared in China and Mongolia nearly two decades ago. So do you guys remember how this trip came about? You and Dan had been taking a trip to uh, the Siberian Railroad and had gone through Mongolia. In in 1999, we took the Trans-Siberian. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of, we were interested in that. Uh That would be kind of neat. Right. Seemed like a real adventure. Did I propose it to you guys or did you guys... I think we talked about it, and I think you proposed the trip. I think you did, because you're the one who generates ideas. We just go along with them. (laughs) Well, I think what happened is when I went with my cousin Dan on that first trip, it just reminded the landscape. It struck me as something that you guys would really like. Mm -hmm. That basically, I was traveling with family, but with a cousin who was younger than me. You know, just sort of a young guys in their twenties trip. And I realized that it would be really fun to come back with you guys. And so I think that's how we sort of ended up doing that. Um, and when we heard your, about your adventure with Dan, well, it sparked interest. Yeah. But we didn't want to miss the train like you and Dan did. Right. Or was it, was it just you? Yeah, Dan didn't miss the train, but I got left behind by the train. And of course, that's that turned into another a different yeah. podcast episode. So... I'll put that in the show notes, but uh, last season we did a, a podcast about the Trans-Siberian I took with my cousin. Um, so, interestingly, Dad, you had been to Guatemala as a young teacher in California. Yes. Um, but Mom, was your first overseas trip to see me in Korea in 1997? Yes. Did You, you got your passport for that trip specifically? Mm-hmm. Right. I hadn't traveled much. Yeah. So we can talk about your arrival in Beijing, where we stayed at the the Zhaolong Youth Hostel. Um, but let's touch on Korea a little bit, because that was that sort of set the stage for this, mm-hmm. I think, because I had pitched you guys on coming to China and Mongolia, but it wasn't like you were just coming to Asia out of nowhere, because when I was an English teacher in, in Korea in 1997, you guys came for about eight days and visited me. Mm-hmm. And what do you, so what do you remember about that very first Korea trip, which would have been, Dad, it would have been your first time to Asia and Mom, your first time out of the U.S. Right, right. Well, it, it seemed, it seemed intriguing, you know, uh, learning about another culture firsthand. Did we say in a youth hostel? I think you stayed in a hotel. A hotel. And it was near a Pizza Hut, because I know that we ate at Pizza Hut once. Uh, of course, 
I think everywhere we ever went, we hated Pizza Hut. <laughs> That's true. We're, 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 Pizza Hut was founded in Wichita, Kansas. We, at the time, you guys lived in Wichita, Kansas. So that was something that was very familiar. And it sort of became a tradition, you know, uh, getting the getting the Pizza Hut in a in a faraway place. I know that we went to the uh, the Chigalchi Market, the little seafood market on the coast. We went to Kyungju, which is the old royal city with some tombs. We took the train out there. Right. We went hiking up the mountain and took a cable car back down. Um, I'm curious for both of you, but maybe especially mom, since it was your first time out of the country, what struck you about Korea? Well, the food markets were just amazing. There's nothing like that around the Midwest in Kansas. And uh, just the sounds and the smells and and sort of the aggressive nature of the people who are selling their things. I mean, uh, you know, they were persistent, you know, and I wasn't used to that if you say, no, thank you. <laughs> Walk on in the Midwest. They leave you alone. <laughs> well, there's also price tags in the Midwest where it's much more negotiable mm -hmm. in Asia. Of course, you not only went to these markets, but you, you actually sort of befriended some people who ran a little convenience market near where I stayed. Right. Which we visited more than once. <laughs> yeah. And, and bought a couple of things for next to nothing. Yeah, so there was a, a little convenience market near my house in Busan, South Korea. Busan is sort of the Los Angeles of Korea. It's the coastal mm -hmm. town in the south, the second biggest city. And I would go to get, we'd go to get snacks and drinks and stuff at this market. And then on the last day, we went in the back and there were these dusty old vases, right? <laughs> right. And they weren't artisanal vases. They were just mass-produced vases that were maybe made in the 1970s. They were super old. And by golly, you bought those as souvenirs and you still have them. I, yes. We do, and we use them. Yes. Yeah. I don't have one out right now, but uh, we use them. And it always brings back memories of our trip there. And the gentleman who <laughs> sold them to him us, now. you yeah. know. Um, what was his personality like? Why do you remember him? We had stopped there several times. Yes. Per prior to buying the, the vases and So he stuff. sort of recognized right, us. Right, yeah. he did. And, and one day as we walked by, he waved at us. I mean, that's more of an American thing, but we waved at him every day when we went by. And just one day, he waved at us first. It was just cute. It, it was a shop that, that your average tourist is not going to visit. And it, was just, it's, it was real Busan. Yeah. Well, that's funny. They... We went to Kyungju, we went to Chagalchi, but some of your most enthusiastic memories are tied to this market and this little cheap throwaway souvenir that you got there. And it's it's the equivalent of just a cheap knickknack you'd buy in the US, but you bought it in Korea. So it was yeah. special. And right? it has a story to go with it. Yeah. And we remember the gentleman who sold it to us, you know. And it, and it really wasn't made for tourists. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be too snobby about that distinction, but you go to the like Chigalchi market, you can buy a vase that's nicer, but it's made for tourists. Whereas this little corner market, it was a vase that maybe some Korean people would put their flowers in. Yeah, it was for the locals. Yeah. Um, any other memories from Korea before we transfer on to China? I know, well, actually, let's talk about karaoke because 
uh, karaoke is not something, it's something you can do in the United States, but it's way more common in Asia. And we went there with my students and they have a little video screen that rates your songs. (laughs) And you guys sang, you are my My sunshine sunshine. and scored a (laughs) hundred. Yes. Nobody else scored a hundred. You guys scored a hundred on that machine. But being, I but, think they just did it. <laughs> but being from Kansas, we both of us in our childhood had sing that many, many times. Maybe, maybe it um, could tell that you were uh, native English speakers, or maybe it was just a random. Maybe it was just a mistake. But it was funny that <laughs> it could have been my students and I. We sang all night, and the only one hundred was you guys. <laughs> In that little karaoke room. And actually, so just so my listeners know, Norebong, in the U.S., karaoke is maybe something that a guy, a DJ will come in and run karaoke night at a bar. Whereas Norebong, the equivalent in Korea, is you, you rent your own room. And you and your group of friends sit in the room. And you have a little TV. And it's, it's sort of automated. There's no real host. And you program in the songs that you want to sing. Um, and it was just, it was such a fun night. And I think part of the reason it's so memorable is because you guys got the high score (laughs) among these people for whom uh, karaoke is a normal thing. Right. So you guys were a little bit salty in Asia after Korea, you, um, streets full of people and, and, and buses and strange language characters and, and things were not brand new to you, but then you came to four years later, you flew into China as sort of a beachhead for Mongolia. And actually, I think, even though that trip was sort of about Mongolia, because I wanted to take you guys to the grasslands, China had some amazing things too. Mm -hmm. So what were your first impressions on getting to China, apart from jet lag? It was a little apprehensive coming into that airport and land many, many hours away from home. And uh, we were glad to see you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know I was trying to report NPR stories at the time. And I was based in Thailand and I didn't have much money. So I had a mini disc recorder and a little microphone I'd bought in Thailand. And I tried to, and of course, by now podcast listeners will know that I did do an episode about it, but it didn't have much sound, like didn't have much in the field interviews because my audio equipment wasn't very good. But I I re-listened to the audio and I asked you guys if you bickered on the plane and, and mom, you said that once you scolded dad for picking his nose. <laughs> oh, did I do yeah. that on tape? Oh, Rob. <laughs> it's possible you didn't know I was recording you. Yep, Berkey, did you, did you bicker? Not at all. <laughs> you didn't either. Once I nudged dad so he'd stop picking his nose and he frowned at me. But that's, that's all we've done. Um, but then, then I asked you about your guidebook. And you said that you'd read your guidebook, but you had some apprehensions. Do you remember what those apprehensions were? Just the fact that there's so many people there, you know, getting lost or... Very strange. Being able to communicate, which wasn't that difficult because enough people knew English you can get by and you can always point. Yeah. And then we had some, we'll get to this in a second, but we had a couple guides who helped us out. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I know this because I just listened to the audio, but you, one, you read the history of the Mongols and you realized that the Mongols were not very nice people. Oh, oh right. Yes. No, Your mother said that. that was they so were not very nice people. <laughs> I mean, the more I read about Mongolia, the less I liked the country. <laughs> what, 
for example. Well, George said, let me read you some of this. He said, gosh, the Mongols were really sweet people. And so he started reading it to me. They were just <laughs> when they rode across the steppes slaughtering people. I'm sure that when they got to Europe, they somehow got into the gene pool of Alice's ancestors because <laughs> she has a little bit of a Mongolian appearance. <laughs> well, then, uh, what does you, that say about me? <laughs> you were also worried about um, getting bursitis. Do you remember this? How marmots in Mongolia have bursitis? Oh, yes. I d I've forgotten I all about that. that. How did you know that? <laughs> well, because you were worried about it. You were worried this, about it. This is the thing, is that dad is the planner, and his instincts for planning are good, and your field instincts are really good, but you are much more a nervous planner, where dad is much more of a nervous guy in the field. If But if not nervous, maybe a little bit more forgetful. And so you were literally worried that maybe you would get bursitis from a marmot. They also talked about like cut and grab pickpockets in the warning yes. section yes. and spitting. It talked about how if, you, if you're waiting at the bus stop, sometimes people will spit out the bus, not realizing that they're not spitting at you. But you just have to be careful because loogies are always being hawked in a place like Beijing. <laughs> I remember reading that. And so we stood back away. Your, your mother reminded me of all of those negative things so we got on it we got in a taxi actually mm -hmm. um remember that and we went to a youth hostel and so it was a decision we sort of traveled as budget travelers you know i i think i was at an age when i sort of had you guys pay for a lot of the trip but i did most of the arrangements and so instead of getting a nice hotel we stayed at a hostel the the Xiaolong youth hostel which is still there in beijing mm -hmm. i think it's near the airport what are your memories about this hostel? We didn't. We stayed in a bunk room, but we had it to ourselves. It was a four bunk bunk room, and right. the fourth bed was empty. So in a way, we had it to ourselves. I, it seemed to me that we were on an upper floor that we stayed, and I remember we'd had, of course, a long plane trip, and we were just exhausted. And uh, there was a somewhat inebriated. We found out later on it was Russian out in the hall, and I mistook him for somebody that worked at the at the ho at the hostel and i was kind of demanding of him you know and and he he could speak english but he obviously had been sipping a little vodka and uh he he was angry with me and i could tell that uh even two or three days later i mean when every time i'd see him he'd just give me this angry look and then i near the end of our trip uh, I apologized to him. I said, you know, I just, we were on a 20 hour plane trip. I had a headache. I, you know, I, I didn't mean to, to be demeaning to you. And, uh, we got into a nice little conversation. I was just sorry we had to leave because I, I, I think that we could have become pretty close friends. But he, he said the thing that about you, you Americans, you guys won. I got memories. We didn't like it, but you won. Huh. I know that, that there's this international dynamic that happens because I don't think he was a tourist. I think he was basically living in the yes, hostel. Yes. It was just a place, cheap place for him to live. And you, you didn't say anything that insulting. You just asked him if he worked there. Yeah. And to his sensibilities, that was insulting. Yes. That he, well, he didn't see himself. From an American. That would right. be very demeaning. And I think you didn't say hello. I mean, you were just jet lagged, right? So yes. you, you you were just a little bit disoriented and you asked, you were asking him for help and he was not an employee of the hostel. 
And he was, you know, maybe a little of a jackass himself. Well, he was offended. And and a little, little, more than a little inebriated. Well, I think, too, that he wasn't proud of living in a hostel, that he wanted to have an apartment in Beijing, but maybe he was at a point in his life. So that's an interesting dynamic. Another thing about the hostel is that, like, we met people from Scotland. And and we started talking about our Scottish ancestry. Yeah. It's a place where you meet a lot of different people from different cultures. Well, from a, a lot of them from uh, uh, like Belgium and places like this. Apparently they'd have like three month vacations and, and take off and, and go different places in the world. And that was interesting to talk to these folks. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting stepping stone into the travel world, something that we wouldn't have had at a normal hotel. And I've talked about this many times since then. You guys, dad, you were a little over 60 and mom, you were a little younger than 60. And you guys were not ostracized. The the hostel was full of people in their 20s, and everybody just shrugged and talked to you like anybody else. There was no ageism in that hostel, I remember. Exactly. Exactly. It was was a a nice environment for us as travelers. Uh, And people were friendly. Yeah. Yeah. And we were treated with respect, and some of it was probably because we were older. And so, but that that was a pleasant environment. pleasant experience in a hostel. Yeah, well, you know, in China in general, um, age affords respect. Were we going to say something? Well, I remember before we came, went on the trip, you said, now remember, you're guests in another country, <laughs> and you have to remember that. So we were trying to follow your Being advice, too. To people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's because sometimes Americans have this consumer attitude toward visiting mm-hmm. a new country, and they want service and they want it now and they want people to understand their english and i wasn't too worried about you guys but i wanted you to understand that it's not personal if things get strange it's that you're in another country you know and your people are are trying their best to understand your language Mm -hmm. and that the the schedules and things are not necessarily american style schedules though interestingly and i'm not sure how chronological this is because we we went to a lot of things we went to uh, Tiananmen Square and the Summer Palace and the Forbidden City and the Temple of Heaven. But an early activity I remember is walking down the street and there was a dragon dance or some sort of some sort of traditional dance yes. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, a lion dance, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I think it was a lion dance. Right down the street. Right on the street. Right. And do you remember what the crowd did for you two? For... For, for us? us, you guys had gray hair, so they got stools for you. Oh, <laughs> oh I forgot, yeah, I forgot about that. that. Yes, I mean yeah. I could walk down the street and people would just shrug and and keep walking, whereas you guys had gray hair, and so they that is respected in China in a way that is not, not here in the U.S. In the U.S. And we were standing there for this lion dance, and within a minute there were a couple stools so you guys could sit down. Yes. <laughs> I've forgotten, forgotten that. that's yeah. that's so good. A couple of times. Uh, there were probably kids that were 10, 11 years old would come up to us and say, hello. Yeah. Yeah. They were right. practicing their English. It was precious. Well, I think sometimes there's a difference between practicing English and just getting a reaction out of people. Yeah. Because people who pr- want to practice their English will come up and they'll try and start a conversation. Whereas kids, they know that the word hello is a little button that yes. you can push and then foreign people will understand and yeah. say hello back, and, right? Right, and that's that's what we did, and we lit up, you know. When I'm, I'm sure they could see, oh, yeah. yeah. 
So they, 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 I thought that was, that was neat. So I think the next day we went to Tiananmen Square, which of course you guys knew from headlines mm -hmm. um, right. from about 10 or 12 years earlier. Yes. Uh, and, and so what are your impressions? Actually, did we eat fast food near Tiananmen Square? Or did we just eat Chinese food? We, we ate Chinese food. Okay. And I remember they gave us the... the uh, Chopsticks? The what? Chopsticks? Well, no, they, they gave us the menu. Mm -hmm. oh. It was in English. Mm -hmm. oh. And you asked for it in Chinese. Then we compared the prices. The English prices were considerably more than the Chinese <laughs> prices. The same food. Yeah. So it showed that you had a little savvy. Yeah, that was hard one. That was good memory to recall, George. And it was near Tiananmen Square. So yes. like your average yeah, Chinese restaurant to. is not going to have an English menu. But because it was near Tiananmen Square, tourists come in and tourists don't, you know, they'll, they'll pay the English language prices. But I was a, you know, I was a backpacker. I'd been backpacking around Asia for two years. And so I knew the score. I knew I knew that there was there was two economies going on there. Um, and I, I want to talk about an incident that happened that same day at Zhongshan Park. But what do you remember about Tiananmen Square? Well, the artists were one thing. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, tell us about the artists. There were a couple of, I would call, sweet young people, maybe in their late teens, possibly early 20s, that had you know, beautiful Chinese art. And they were wanting to sell us to us. Well, we weren't wanting to buy, not that we didn't like the art, but just carrying it back home. And then what are we going to do with it when we get home? Plus, it was early in our trip, you know. Right, we, yes. And we were going to go to Mongolia and what we're going we to do. We wanted to be careful in making a selection. But, but we, I, we took them to dinner, and they, were, they took us around, and uh, they, were very, they were very nice. Uh, but they kept trying to sell us that art, and we kept apologizing, no, and these are the reasons why we like your art. I think if you would have read online about, you know, if you would have Googled art Tiananmen Square, that's actually a thing, that art students, a certain kind of art students, will approach tourists and sort of give them the hard sell on the art. And in fact, Cousin Dan and I had been approached by students two, there two years earlier. And so I think the thing is that you guys were just so nice and genuine with them that they, they did do a hard sell, but it wasn't. And I think they were disappointed that you didn't buy art. They were. But it ended up, it ended up being an okay exchange yeah, with them. It was. It was. But that's what I probably remember most about Tiananmen Square. Isn't that interesting? A big, giant historical square, yet it's this little interaction with a couple art students that you remember the most. People are most important. Well, and we found that People are nice every place. Well, I gave you guys another travel strategy that proved really useful that same day in Zhongshan Park, where we walked around. And really the most memorable thing wasn't walking through Zhongshan Park and looking at the park and, and the buildings and the statues, but it happened with- the, the grandmother. Right, so with tell that story. Grandsons. Well, I'll let your mother tell that. Well. You kind of have to help me. Well, uh, we just had this cute little uh, boy. Grandbaby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, and they were talking, even though we weren't talking the same language, uh -huh. you were talking about your grandsons. And so I took out, I had my little travel purse, 
and I took out some pictures and showed them. Pictures and, of what? Uh, of our grandsons. Uh-huh. And, and uh, she said, oh, a boy. Or was it two yeah. boys? It was no, one boy. One, one boy. boy. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Luke, was Luke was just, not yet yeah, born. Right. Luke, it was, Luke a, was about three months from being born. Oh, a boy. A boy. She said, oh, you know, touched her heart like, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> because... You know, male children are just at least one is highly valued in that <laughs> culture, and so. Well, that was a. Keep going. I found out that those photos, uh, those photos that I had brought with me, were just a really good resource in communicating with people. You didn't have to say much. <laughs> you did the same thing at the Beijing Zoo. Mm-hmm. You met a couple of grandmothers there. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a strategy I advised you to, to bring a picture of your grandson. Okay. Uh, Cedar was maybe two years old at the time, and then that humanizes you, I guess. That bas- basically they can probably assume your grandson, but when they see this chubby little grandbaby, yeah. then they can identify with us, can't yeah. they? Because so you guys, we must have hung out with that kid and his grandparents for fifteen minutes, at least. and I taught him how to do high fives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Forgotten that, Rob. Thank you. There we go. Uh-oh. Give me five. Give me five. <laughs> 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 and the glasses was it right. his glasses that he was wearing or maybe somebody yeah. I, was, you. You know, I put my glasses on upside down you. and then he put his or either I put them upside down on his face or he put them upside down and he was peeking around a tree we have a picture of that yeah it was you George you turned yours upside down yeah. and looked at him yeah. and so he had glasses and he put them on and turned them upside down little sunglasses so you guys were like 55 years older than this kid but he was just communicating you know he yeah. was just having you fun don't speak the same way right you don't really have to know the language to communicate with people some things are easier if you know the language and can communicate, but there are ways that you can communicate with people. And really smiles or acknowledgement is is a good way. Yeah. It's universal. People can tell a smile, or even if they're not used to waving, you know, just putting your hand up or Uh extending it shows that you're welcoming. Well, let's talk, I don't know if this is chronological, but let's talk about the Beijing Zoo because that ended up being a fun, well, let's talk about two things. Let's talk about the the Natural History Museum and and the Beijing Zoo because those were not, I mean, we went to Tiananmen Square, we went to the Temple of Heaven and the Forbidden City, but in a way, the Natural History Museum and the zoo, even though they were at the time in 2001, they weren't very sophisticated attractions. You guys ended up really enjoying them. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the zoo. Uh, so what was the zoo like and what was there? Well, of course, the panda. Mm-hmm. And that's, that was, that's the, mm-hmm. was the major attraction to the right. zoo. Most, most people flocked to that. And because it was so famous, the panda, I would expected a, a modern zoo. Like even we have like the Sedgwick County Zoo in, in, in 
Wichita is a very modern zoo. Uh, and it was more like a, a Victorian age uh, zoo. It was more like the zoo in Riverside Park in Wichita, yeah. which was just basic, basic the iron bar cages. cages and, and, and the lion that would come out and, and growl. And, and the monkeys uh, over, you know, they were in a pit. And, right, right. It was, we, we were really surprised. <laughs> so it's funny just to hold that thought, but it's funny that in 2001, you went to one of the biggest cities in the world and you saw a zoo that you compared to the second best zoo in Wichita, Kansas, <laughs> yes. USA. Go ahead. Well, it, it was... Uh, it was a shock at first because it had different kind of expectations, but then it was it was very unique in itself. And it was one of our favorite places. Yeah, it you, was. And you so could was... meet very a very a variety of people there. You know, people like who were dressed up more, yes. visiting with somebody, or just and, and people anywhere you go to a zoo, they react the same way. Nowhere in the world, I, I mean, anywhere in the world, to animals. They love mm -hmm. animals, particularly monkeys. Yeah, right. <laughs> because they laugh and scratch themselves like monkeys do. <laughs> and you know. Point and laugh, yeah. you know. It's a, I think that there is something universal about seeing monkeys at the zoo. Yeah. And it's interesting. I know that by far, the panda exhibit was the marquee part of that zoo at the time, which was not a very, I'm sure it's a much more technologically and presentationally sophisticated zoo now. But at the time, the, the core was the panda exhibit. I think we had to wait in line more there, but the pandas were hilarious. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, they Rolling were. Around and... yeah. But the housing was not spectacular. No. You yeah. Know, it was just pretty... That was the day we went to Pizza Hut. And I'm sorry to keep yeah. bringing that yeah. up, but I, I know there's a Pizza Hut near the zoo. And so we decided we'd eaten at Pizza Hut in Korea. So we decided we we're going to eat in eat. Beijing, too. Yeah. I think we've ever where we've been, we've eaten in a Pizza Hut right. in Paris. And I'm not sure Prague. But. Right. Well, that'll be another episode is yeah. Paris and Prague, which we did much, much later in our travel site, about a decade later. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about the Natural History Museum because that was, in a way, as sophisticated or even a bit less sophisticated than the zoo. It was an old school natural history museum. It didn't oh, have English yeah. exhibits, but you guys sort of loved it. Tell oh, us yeah. about it. Well, there's something intriguing about going to a natural history museum and not have it state of the art. You know, you have old things there and the building was old and the exhibits weren't nearly as sophisticated as the field some museum of, in Chicago right in the US yeah. but there was something just uh, in kind of charming about being in an old museum with old things you guys were excited about the museum which is funny because it, it was a pretty dusty frumpy museum and mm -hmm. we were staying at the hostel there was an, an Australian couple there they're a little bit older but not you guys' age and you guys excitedly told them about this museum and they went and they were sort of angry <laughs> because, you know, compared to other exhibits in Beijing, it wasn't very interesting. I mean, it wasn't very well presented, but and, I think. And maybe compared to other museums they had been to, they, they thought, what? But there's something just um, intriguing about these old displays in from long ago, it just seemed like it was so fitting in that old building instead of state-of-the-art. 
you know? It, it was more cognitive or more effective than cognitive. You just had this feeling, you know, as much as you did this understanding. And uh, it, it, it would just, it, it didn't send chills down your, your, your back, but, but it just, it was just kind of a warm feeling that you had. That, you know, this, this is just a neat old museum. Well, it's funny that you guys are still sort of excited about it, you know. Yeah, it's something that the Australian that. couple just didn't like at all. But you, I guess it goes to show that any place you go, if you bring your imagination yeah. and your curiosity and your interest and your willingness to slow down and realize that not every tourist site is going to do all the work for you. Yeah. If you do some of the imaginative work yourself, you can still be excited about it 18 and a half years later. Right, and, and we've been places from the La Brea Char Picks pits in, in Los Angeles to the Natural History Museum in, in New York City. And uh, so, so and, and I, a lot of museums in between, so we were museum people, and uh, every one of them was exciting, but this one was just kind of unique. Unique, mm-hmm. But it's sort of part of your travel dialogue is a museum-oriented one. And natural history museums are sort of a vernacular that right. you guys are attracted to. Well, you can learn a lot about a country just by visiting a natural history museum. Yeah? Yeah. How, how yeah. so do you think? Well, plants, mm -hmm. animals, you know. Uh, you, in a way, the interests of people or why did they save these hmm. uh, uh, or make these exhibits, you know. It, it must have been something they cared about or they wouldn't have done it. I, I remember, though, when we went to eat dumplings, we were on the way to the Hidden City. Mm -hmm. And I remember this uh, Chinese man came up with a little Red Mao book. And he was trying to sell me the book. And at the same time, he was telling me that communism was far better than capitalism. And I had to remind him that I said, are you selling this book? Yes. Do you want your, for money? Yes. I said, you're practicing capitalism right there. <laughs> and he looked a little shocked and then started laughing. <laughs> yeah, I think he just rolled with that. That was sort of part of his act. Yeah, that He was right. sort of trying to guilt tourists into buying his little red books. Yeah. The funny thing is, is that that, I think, was your favorite story from Beijing. Yeah. Uh, your favorite random story. And then, Mom, your favorite random story was a little boy and showing pictures. Right. And so in the audio that I recorded in my potential NPR story, you guys had already started sharing that story when we were still in Beijing. Really? <laughs> that you were, you were so charmed by the Mao Red Book story yeah. and you're so charmed by the showing the pictures to the grandparents mm -hmm. that you, you, were, you had already started to tell the story of the trip. When we, were, when we came into uh, the, the park area... At, Summer at, Palace. At the Summer Palace. Yeah. Uh, they were selling, you know, the, the little red books, and and one guy who was probably about my age, maybe a little bit younger, you know, he said, "You don't don't like communism?" I said, "I'm not political, you know. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about that." So, well, do you like capitalism? I said, "Ask this guy right here. He's a capitalist. He was he was trying to sell me some I said, "There's your capitalist right there." <laughs> and I'm pulling and the guy started laughing. And he said, "Yeah." Instead, I give him a penny, American penny, a shiny penny, and and so and send him over a picture of our grandson, and so they admire our grandson, and then they send it back, and uh, you know it was just sort of this thing, you know, say thank you. They told him to say thank you to us, and it, it was just I we just all had a lot of fun, <laughs> which seems, um, which seems so normal, you know. 
there's little moments when in travel that speak to you and you, they're usually not traditional tourist moments, but they're little personal moments that make it memorable and they immediately make it memorable. I think any place you travel though, I mean, you're, you're seeing things, but I think the, the people you meet are more personal, more meaningful than the things you see. Mm. You go to a famous museum and yes, you've been to the famous museum, you've read about it, you maybe have known about it most of your life, but then you have these little encounters with people and those are the things you seem to remember the best and you feel best about. For sure. And we had plenty of those in China and Mongolia. Right. And so let's talk about Mongolia, including the trip there. We took the train. We took the train from Beijing to Lombardor and it was an 18-hour train. Mm-hmm. That, that was, was a new experience one. too. Yes. I've never ridden. I slept on a train before. You never slept on a train before. No. Yeah. No. I when, as a kid, I've ridden the train quite a bit, and uh, but I've never had ridden a train where they stopped the train between Kansas and Missouri, lifted the train up, and changed the wheels on it. But they certainly did that between China and Mongolia, and that was an interesting experience because you had narrower tracks right, in Mongolia. Right, the rails were different. Yeah, it was so a little scary at first. Of course, you, you get out of the train when they do that. Right, right. But that's an old historical detail that I guess China and Mongolia being in the, in the Russian sphere of influence didn't really trust each other. So they had different gauge train tracks to make sure that if an invasion happened, it couldn't be fast. Yeah. We changed our wheels of our train. We went into Mongolia and Lombardor. And then what did we find in Mongolia? How was it different? What did we do there? Well, the housing was different. How so? Well, we stayed in the gear. Yeah, so, you know, Lombardor is, is sort of this ramshackle modernization town, but we stayed in a gare, which is a, a little round tent. Sometimes they're called yurts. Mm-hmm. And I think every night, but the last night in Mongolia, we stayed in a gare. Mm-hmm. And they had beds. It's not like we slept on the floor. No, no. Kind of caught like things. Yeah. So talk about the gare and where we stayed and what we did out there. We were seeing, really, when we got out into the country, we were seeing the past that extended hundreds of years into the past. It had really not changed much. But we were out on the, on the, the step outside of Lombardor. We were in a place called Elstai. We had a, guy, a Mongolian guide who was the same guide that led cousin Dan and I two years before. We went for a hike. We saw some old, an old Turkic language monolith. And of course, you guys, you know, you're a science professor and you're a farm girl. And so you were very much into the landscape. But, and we can get to that a little bit more, but a rainstorm blew over. Tell, tell us about what happened. That, that almost our first full day in Mongolia, we got attacked by a rainstorm. Pouring down rain, you know, wind. And so... Basically, just, no shelter. I mean, you, you look all around you, and it's just grassland. And then we did, did find some shelter. Well, it's funny. We have 18 years of hindsight now. But there was some tension that day because you, Dad, George said, look, a rainstorm is blowing in. And we all just sort of ignored you. And then the rainstorm blew over. But we have the photo album in front of us. You guys went home and made a photo album. And you literally talk in the photo album 
about, it says, George, you were so right. <laughs> George, you were right for the first time in your life. So you came home and made this photo album and you were still <laughs> arguing for the fact that you what? warned us about the rainstorm. There was no shelter on the step. And we ignored you because we were so interested in Mongolia. And then we got trapped in a rainstorm. In this photo, it says, what did I tell you? Yeah. George speaking. George, I said, you were so right. <laughs> After the fact. <laughs> right. And this says you were right for the first time in your life. But what, what happened is in a lightly populated place like Mongolia, there was no place to go. But we found a gear. Right. And this, and this made the adventure just opened up the adventure because we got new, to see things that we might have not perspective that we could not have if it hadn't been for the, right for those folks that and bear in mind we here. couldn't speak to these people in english we just had to make signs and show pictures and <laughs> well we had oogie who, who could translate a little bit yeah but um that was a funny detail is that we visited some families in Gares, but never by accident until the rainstorm. And the funny thing is that it, it made our day because we didn't have to be pounded and soaked by this rainstorm. We did get wet, but we didn't have to stay in the rainstorm. And the Mongolian family never had an American family just stumble in in the middle of an afternoon. And so they were... It was excitement on both ends. That it, it, it just made their month that suddenly there was a bunch of Kansas people sitting in their gear while a rainstorm ra raged outside. And it was a little bit of verbal and a little bit of nonverbal communication. Ugi translated for us a little bit. And in fact, she's the one who told us how they had used to work in a factory and now they were back out on, on the step. But um, They were trying to make their living out on the... He was caretaker for a little museum there. And, and uh, we, I had my pictures. I got out my pictures. We sat by their their stove, their little stove, a, mm -hmm. little pot, a tea kettle of water on top of it, you know. And I showed the pictures. And pictures of your grandson. Right. Yeah, so that, that ended up being a really, like nothing happened necessarily, except just a little bit of communion and conversation between two people who lived on the other sides of the world. And they we got to stay a little bit drier because of them, and they had a little bit more of an interesting day because of us. And tea. We, we, and we drank tea. We, not yeah. coffee, but did tea. We, did we drink some uh, mayor's milk there? Well, not there. That was the next day or two, because let's go ahead and talk about that. The next day, we, we had a van trip planned to Karakoram, which Ugi, our guide, called Hachorin. We'll call it Karakoram for the purpose of this, just so people know what we're talking about. But basically, Karakoram... If you look on a map of Mongolia, Karakoram doesn't look too far from Mongolia, but Mongolia is huge. Mongolians like the size of Western Europe. So we actually had an all-day drive in a, in a minivan from Elstai and, and Ulaanbaatar out to the old Genghis, Genghis Khan royal capital at Karakoram. And we had our driver. And what nickname did you give to our driver, Mom? <laughs> Paul. <laughs> Paul. Right. So we had a Mongolian driver, and he was sort of... He was a pleasant guy, but he was sort of tough. He used to be a policeman. He had a bullet hole in his in his arm or his side or something. But mom just decided that he was a good soul and that his name was Paul. And he didn't call himself Paul. He had a Mongolian name, but mom decided that his name was Paul and we called him Paul. Right. And he drove us through Mongolia on their biggest highway, like Highway 1. It was the only paved road that went 
to Karakorum, and it was full of potholes. There are times where it, when it turned to dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, we think about roads in the U.S., and they just they don't compare at all to this road, which is the only road to the western part of the country that was barely paved at all. And so, what did we during this drive? What did we find along the way? We ran out of gas, didn't we? Almost out of gas. Well, we ran out of gas, and there's there's no there's no gas stations on yeah. this highway. So so Paul had to, to negotiate with people on the side of the road who sort of have little businesses, knowing <laughs> that people are going to be short on gas. And he smart people. <laughs> he bought little buckets of gas and filled the gas as we went. But we also ran into Aldochin, and what are Aldochin? What job do they the Aldochin have? Cowboys, Mongolian cowboys. Yeah. That was that was really fascinating. Yeah. It reminded they, us of the Flint Hills. You yeah. Know. Well, yeah, the, the steps were very much like the, the Flint Hills of Kansas. And we can get into that later. But they went 15 days driving their cattle to Lombardia. Cattle and what else were they driving? Uh, they were driving yaks. Yaks, yeah. right. So right. we, we met these cowboys. And, you know, Mom has talked about how I said bring pictures of your grandkid i also said bring pictures of kansas so you had a postcard with a bison on it and that aldo (laughs) chin the the mongolian cowboy just thought that was really interesting and again it was one of those situations where we sort of made their day too they were on a 16-day cattle drive to take their yaks and cattle to market and they randomly ran into some americans who showed them (laughs) pictures of bison and asked them questions and and we commented to one another later is that they probably were spending a lot of the rest of their trip talking about those Americans they met on the, and how different they were, you know. Oh, my. It's, the Mongolians have a different relationship with landscape because I know we would be driving along, and, and Paul, who's a guy who had military and police training, wasn't a naturalist by any Western standards. He'd say, oh, he'd make a comment, and Ugi would translate, and she's like, oh, there's a step fox. And we're like, where? Where's a step yeah, fox? Yeah. And it's over. Birds, he, he would tell you all the birds out there. Yeah. Yeah. And so he wasn't trained in science. He had just grown up on the steppe. And so he would see a step fox two miles away. And we are science enthusiasts. And it took us 10 miles. minutes <laughs> to see what he saw. Basically, he could look at the landscape. He trained. He trained himself yeah. to see things in nature. Well, he just grew up that way. And I think if you, for example, if you are around cattle or, or herd animals, then you learn to stop to spot foxes or to stop, you know, spot predators and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember that detail that we're, we're all science people, obviously, but he saw things in the landscape that we just couldn't nice. see, even after he told us where they were. One nice thing about having a highway that's barely paved is that we could just tell Paul to pull over anytime we wanted. Right and take pictures. And that leads to something else I want to talk about, which is um, we were driving along and Ugi, our guide said, oh, this is this is Erdensant. I, I have some family that lives here. And we're like, oh, you have family that lives here? <laughs> yeah, but you know, I don't, I don't need to see my family. We'll just go to Karakoram. And it's like, let's see your family. <laughs> Somehow she, it didn't occur to her that we would be delighted to see her family. And so this led to a whole other adventure Unplanned. <laughs> a completely unplanned adventure where it just so happened that in the town where her relatives lives, they were having a Nottam Festival preliminary race. Yeah. 
And your average tourist, including me in 1999, know that Nottam is this spectacular festival where they have wrestling competitions, archery competitions, and young boys and girls below the age of about 14 will race horses. Right. Well, the, Mongol, the, the national competition was still a couple weeks away, but the regional competitions were happening that day. <laughs> and so we were the only Americans or Westerners in the town of Erdensant while well, all these kids were racing their horses to see who would qualify, qualify and represent the, the, the village of Erdensant at the national competition. And it was absolutely delightful. I'm curious to know what you guys remember about that. Oh, they were all ages. I mean, they were, they were, there were some, some young of them kids. probably five, six years old. And this one girl, I mean, you talk about a tough woman and she was probably 11 10 or 11 years old and uh, you could tell that she had uh, grown up on a horse she, <laughs> yeah she'd grown up on a horse she grew up in a you know in a, a very in Outdoors. an environment that could be very harsh particularly in the winter time and uh but she was also uh, very uh, determined uh and uh, she was going to win a horse race and that was it and uh so that that's that was just a thing that that just jumped out at me. Well, it's interesting that we were we sort of had celebrity status because we were the only, you know, non-Mongolians there, and so a lot of the racers, especially the little boys, would come up and try to talk to us. That girl didn't really care. She <laughs> she, she she was, was there polite, to race. right? Yeah. She she not when Oogie was talking to her, she acknowledged us and she answered our questions, but she had no interest in us. She lived and breathed those horses. And yes. Oogie told me that people like her, she probably knew how to ride a horse before she knew how to walk. Yeah. That that the kids growing up in that part of the country, that basically the horsemanship of ten year old girls like her are as good as any horseman of any age in the United States, that these people lived horses. And ran into one of the young horsemen, I would say he was 12, 13, and he spoke almost perfect English. And uh, we decided that we would trade addresses. And so he wrote down his address for me and I gave him one of my business cards and he looked at me and he says, oh, PhD. <laughs> <laughs> He was, uh, he was impressed, and that, that impressed me that he would be impressed with that. I mean, when I was his age, I would have been impressed with a card that I received from a PhD. It was just so you have this kind of relationship with, with, a, uh, with a young man halfway across the world who had the same kind of uh, impression uh, that I would have had at the same age in America. And when I got home, I did send him a postcard from Kansas. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We wondered how long it would take him to get it. We don't know. Well, those kids who were racing the horses, most of them were wearing very colorful traditional costumes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, made of made of silk or heavy cloth. And I remember that we were taking so many pictures. We were taking pictures of all these kids. And there was one kid who was probably a little bit poor and his family couldn't yes. afford a fancy racing costume. Yeah. And he just hung around at the edge and I was taking pictures and taking pictures, and this is a normal tourist thing. You take pictures of the people who look the most classically, platonically Mongolian. And he was wearing a ratty t-shirt and jeans. And I looked over him, 
and I took a picture of him and he was so happy yes. that basically he wanted to be included in this ritual, yeah. but he didn't have the fancy racing costume. And his smile was so big <laughs> when I took a picture of him. I remember that. So then we met Ugi's family, sort of a multi-generational bunch, including a grandmother. And we have a picture of her here in the album. She's very, very stately looking woman, but very old. Clearly very, very old. matriarch. Mm -hmm. And we started, we had a camera. This is another place where the, the camera came in handy in an interesting way. We were talking about how they had done some Nottam races with their horses and, and we drank some fermented mare's milk. We, we drank yeah. some of the traditional Mongolian drink. I was, and then, a, I was a little worried about Paul because he just had a little bit too much of that fermented mare's <laughs> milk. Right, well, he I guess driving. if he had driven us off the highway, we just would have ended up in the grass. You yeah, know, it's like right. driving on, in that part of Mongolia, it's like driving on Can in Kansas times 10. There's really no trees to run into. But they were talking about how they had some, some horse racing champions. And they asked us if we wanted to see their medals. And it's like, sure. And so what, what did they do when they took out the medals? <laughs> they brought their horses up. The medals were on the foreheads of the horses. Yeah, so... They weren't on the wall of their, of their gear. So, showing them well, off. I, obviously the, the horses don't wear their medals all, all the, time, the time. But when no. they're showing them. But in the U.S., when we think of athletic competition, even horse racers, the jockey will get the medal. Yeah. These medals were for the horses. horses. Yes, they the did the work. The race. Yes. And so we have photos of actually, they have a special headdress. Well, they, they will hang the medals on the horses. And that's the mindset. They don't think of, yeah, my, my nephew was a great rider and he won this medal. They think this horse was a, is a good horse yeah. and it won these medals. Mm, yes. So in just one afternoon in Erdensant, we had all of these experiences that were a really interesting window into Mongolia, and it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't have said, yeah, Ugi, let's meet your family. <laughs> See, and, and I can remember talking about it later. Some of our best adventures were not on we're the not agenda. Planned. Yeah, not exactly. on the agenda. It, it's the things that you talked about on the audio that I recorded back in the day, and the things we talk about now, almost none of them were planned tourist activities. And we had fun in our planned tourist activities. But you think about in Korea, that little corner market where we got a cheap vase. Um, in Beijing, where we ended up just talking to a little kid and his grandmother and not understanding anything, but, but right. interacting with them. This old fashioned museum with all of these skeletons and pictures and no English captions, that was what we were excited about being in Mongolia and just sort of running into some cowboys or getting caught in a rainstorm and hanging out with the family. That goes to show that people worry about getting their money's worth out of travel. But our best experiences were accidents, really, in China Off and Mongolia. Off the path. <laughs> yeah. Really nothing can be created and marketed that affects you in, in quite the same way as just the situations that happen when you follow your curiosity or when you dare to ask your guide, can we see, can we meet your family? Which was delightful for her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think she didn't, she didn't intentionally introduce us to her family because she thought maybe that would be too indulgent on her part, that she would get to hang out with her family and that we, maybe we'd prefer to see Karakoram. The thing of it is, I hardly remember what we saw in Karakoram. <laughs> like it was yeah. the old Mongolian, yeah. and Khan, Genghis Khan capital and Kublai Khan capital, but 
I mostly remember those horse racers at Erdensant, which we oh, which wasn't even on our tour itinerary. Yes. Yeah. And we I can remember on the way home after we we were reviewing what we had done and some of our highlights were unexpected things. Little surprises. It really was. And actually I was trying to remember the train ride back from Lombardo to Beijing. We we flew. Yes. They they actually we got on a we got on an airplane and it was Mongolian air and it's the only time I've ever been served beef tongue on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even remember I that. I didn't either. Rob. I probably I, didn't eat it. Mom would have been from the farm. Well, well, we were talking about how sort of your most precious souvenir from Korea was this cheap little corner market vase that oh, you yes. still have. It's maybe 20 feet from where we're sitting right now. And this question sort of for George. What was your most precious souvenir from Mongolia that you no longer have? And oh, yes, yes. <laughs> the, the steppes in Mongolia are, are grassland. And they are very similar in appearance to... Uh, a well-known grassland in, in Kansas called the Flint Hills. And the Flint Hills are, the hills are pretty high. In Mongolia, they're higher than they are. But the ecosystem is almost exactly the same. I was amazed when I started looking at the flowers and the, and the grasses that they were so similar to what they were in Kansas. So I was gonna pull a trick uh, on some of my friends at the biological survey who were botanists and I was going to bring back some of these Mongolian flowers and have them identify them for me. What I want to do well, is you can see all of that. collect some of these and take them back them. to my Kansas uh, botanist friends that are very good at identifying things, but not tell them where they came from. And see if they can, and see if they can, can oh, see if they can identify them. <laughs> kind of trick them. Give them a little test. Yes, give them a test. Good. Say, hey, I found this on, uh, in the grassland. I won't tell them that. Uh, so I collected some, but the plants were so similar. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole other story on why they are that way. But. Well, again, that's and this is I sort of touch on this in my in my old NPR story about you guys' visit to Mongolia and China and how the the parental dynamic is, is sort of reversed. But I think you find your interests and obsessions from home and that helps give you a window on the new place yeah. because you talked about Kansas a lot in Mongolia and China, but that doesn't mean that you saw less of China and Mongolia. And in a way you saw more than your average tourist because you were identifying wildflowers. You were thinking about Cowtown when you were seeing the, the Forbidden City. You were making these connections. You were going into a natural history museum and thinking about other fossils you've seen in other places. And so it's interesting how home, when you travel, home is often in dialogue with the new place that you go, mm -hmm. and it serves as a kind of interpretive lens for the new place you go. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a catalyst for seeing things in new settings. So let's talk about this trip, which is obviously a very memorable trip that still not only affects us, but it sort of still excites us today. We can still sort of get excited about some of the things we saw, even in a dusty old museum. So how do you remember this? It just a very general question, how do you remember this and how did it affect you and what did you learn from that 18-day trip to China and Mongolia? As anywhere that we traveled, you know, I remember the people more than the things and the interaction with the people. But, but the landscape just reminded me so much of the Flint Hills 
and uh, of course they were different too but it just takes you back to your home roots you know that and it helps you to see there are other places of beauty very similar to what we experience in other places of the world and the people there are they were lovely gracious people and there were a few that were kind of rough and gruff and that's the way life is <laughs> travel is enriching it is makes you appreciate home but you have this treasure that you can call up from time to time This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>